Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. What's going on, everyone? So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Andy Wink of the Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association, which helps protect Bristol Bay fishery in southwest Alaska. So Alaska accounts for roughly six to nine hundred million pounds of salmon annually. And Bristol Bay is a huge percentage of that, roughly about a third. Um, Alaska is so impressive with its salmon production that it doesn't even allow for salmon farming. So anytime you get Alaskan salmon, it's wild caught. They just don't need to farm. Um, And Bristol Bay in particular doesn't even need hatcheries. So, you know, a lot of other places in Alaska need to even up their production and create hatcheries, allowing the the salmon to grow to a certain point and then releasing them. Bristol Bay doesn't. Um, The past few years... 2019, 2018, before that, have been incredible, really banner years. And the way 2020 is panning out, it's going to be probably pretty same, at least pretty similar. Uh, In like four days, they were able to catch four, or excuse me, 10 million sockeye salmon. I mean, they have this down to a science. Bristol Bay, Alaska in general, they know the value of what they have, the salmon. Uh, They know the value of the ecosystem in which they take that salmon from um, and they know how important it is to protect that so I've heard about this proposed mine for years now but I thought it ended a while ago I thought it was shut down or the proposal was shut down Um, but no Um, and the more I read about it the more fucking bananas it sounds the more I hear about it the more poorly planned out it is They're trying to build one of the largest mines in the world at the headwaters of one of the most productive salmon fisheries in the world. So whether or not you love salmon, whether or not you even like to eat fish or even eat meat at all, you've got to understand how important this is, not just from a, not just from an ecosystem sense, but from the economics, the ability for people to year after year rely on this for their money, for their income, for their livelihood, and how rare this is now that we've pushed it out from, you know, we've pushed out salmon production and Pacific Northwest, and now that it's no longer in, you know, Northeastern United States, how rare it is to have just a renewable, sustainable source. They've been doing this for decades. It's as natural as it can be. How rare it is for that to maintain like that. And what this pebble mine is trying to do is, although they claim they're going to try and be considerate of the salmon farming itself, is it's impossible for them to. There's no precedent of a mine of this scale working in this area and such a, such an important economic, um, and environmental area. All they're trying to get is this, this low grade bullshit ore (laughs) 
this ore that really doesn't, it's, it's really difficult for them to gather. And essentially they're poisoning the waters as they do it. The Army Corps of Engineers haven't done any, or haven't at least done an adequate environmental impact statement, um, not accounting for any seismic activity which is in the area. The company in charge, the Pebble pr Partnership, is trying to get out before they even break ground. They're trying to sell the, the idea of the project, the plans for the project. They're trying to remove all ownership of it before the project even begins. Does that not say speak volumes? Um, this Tom Collier, the CEO, he'll get a $12 million bonus. Good for him uh, if this goes through. Um, it's so flimsy that six investors have already bailed on it. Um, so the only saving grace right now, it's being pushed through this administration, much like everything at such a quick rate. The only saving grace is no one wants to be a part of it. Well, hopefully. I mean, Alaska's very pro-development. Um, you know, a lot of people in that area are pro-drilling, and that's a separate issue entire, entirely. But when speaking with Andy, it's apparent that no one, I mean, really very few numbers of people, if anyone at all, not in the Pebble Project, is really for this mine. So it's, um, you know, it's been something that's been in the news for a while now. But the next few months, the proposal could be accepted. Um, it could move forward in production. Who's to say where it goes from there? But Andy and I, when we speak, talk about ways that people can, you know, speak out against this project or even just inform yourself, right? I mean, you know, you can do your own research and learn about this, but it's been bouncing around the news for a while. And again, no one wants to be a part of it. It's a hot potato that no one wants to either invest in or really follow through. And the most frustrating thing of all of this is that we've made mistakes like this in the past. We've put short-term flash in the pan, economic growth over long-term, natural, reliable, proven, sustainable methods of both maintaining the ecosystem and also benefiting from it economically. And it's so frustrating to know that we haven't learned from our mistakes one bit. To know that we're still, our people are still pushing for what could amount to destruction of one of the most beautiful areas in the world. I mean, Andy mentions that the salmon runs are so dense that you feel like you can walk over them in some places. And we're going to jeopardize that for a fucking mine. It's crazy. It's just crazy. So anyways, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, a bit of a soapbox, but it's important stuff. It really is. Um, and we just seem to do this time and time again. And it's good to know that the general public, most politicians, it sounds like, are all not in favor of this. So even if you don't listen to the whole podcast, um, even if you turn it off right after this sentence, that's totally fine. Totally understand. I know uh, I can be a lot to listen to sometimes. But 
And he did tell me of a really great site to go to. It's called Choice Voice. <laughs> it's called there you go. It's called ChoiceVoiceVote.org, um, and it allows you to find your local representatives and tell them how you feel about Pebble Mine. And you can go there. You can click on Save Bristol Bay, Alaska, um, and tell your representatives how you feel. And it doesn't matter if you're from Alaska. It doesn't matter if you live in Florida. It doesn't matter where you are. Just getting some outspoken voices on this subject will help, should help, save Bristol Bay and save this incredible uh, ecosystem. So, again, I want to thank everyone for their time. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, It's incredible. Andy was really great to talk to, um, and I really appreciated him taking some time out of his busy schedule to chat with me. So if you enjoy, as always, feel free to like, rate, review, subscribe, um, all that stuff. It always always helps so much. Um, cool. Without further delay. There you go. All right. So in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Andy Wink of the Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association, which helps protect Bristol Bay fishery in southern Alaska. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Alaska provides much of the world salmon, uh, if not like the you know the continental U.S. How much salmon is exported from Alaska, and particularly from the Bristol Bay area? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different ways to break this down, um, but Alaska is a big deal. It's the name in wild salmon, right? And for good reason, uh, California, Oregon, Washington state, they, they catch some salmon commercially. 85% of the U.S. Uh, wild salmon harvest comes from Alaska. Um, that ended up being between 600 to 900 million pounds over the last couple of years. <laughs> wow. And uh, it's a lot of Yeah, salmon. seriously. About it. Is they've been doing it, they've been managing it the same way for decades. So, you know, I think sometimes you hear a big number like that, um, and you're like, you know, how can you take that many fish out of the water sustainably? Right. But they really do an amazing job of making sure the runs come back. And I'm talking about people out in the field counting fish, making sure sonars are are working, uh, counting fish when there's a lot of bears around too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sure. Bears. Yeah. So, you know, Bristol Bay, um, if you turn your hand towards you so you can see the back of it and um, put your index finger and thumb finger out and keep your other knuckles tucked in and stretch, it, Bristol Bay is like the bay between your index finger and middle finger. So it basically opens out into the Bering Sea. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's called a bay, but usually when people think of a bay, they think of kind of a relatively smaller body of water. Bristol Bay is very wide, right? Um, And uh, that's kind of like Alaska's salmon breadbasket, basically. Um, You know, not a great analogy, I guess, because it's it's fishing, wild fishing, not farming. But um, in fact, salmon farming is is not allowed uh, uh, in Alaska. But um, 
Bristol Bay accounts for about a third of the volume and about half of the value of uh, Alaska salmon. So, you know, that one area is just vitally important to um, Alaska salmon industry. So, you know, all of Alaska produced almost 900 million pounds of salmon last year. And uh, Bristol Bay was about 235 million pounds, just Bristol Bay alone. Wow. Wow, that's wild. So you were saying it's not like farming is not allowed. Uh, A, why is it not allowed? And B, like, is it allowed in other areas in Alaska? No. um, uh, Yeah, no. Farming, as you think about growing fish in cages, you know, in the ocean, that's not legal in Alaska. What they do have in some parts of Alaska are hatcheries. So grow the fish to, you know, a few inches and then let them out in the wild and they'll go spend a few years in the ocean come back as you know anywhere from probably like three to 15 pound fish depending on the species um so you know those still as wild fish i mean if they're uh even though they're you know maybe being hatched in a hatchery if they're going out you know coming back um they're they're pretty fit for survival and a lot of them you know whether it's hatchery or wild fish uh you know or wild stocks is what we call it um you know just a few per you know just a small percentage uh make um i trying to struggle and trying to think it off the top of my head but you know it's it's low single digits um, as far as what gets spawned and goes out and comes back. Um, oh, wow. But, you know, it's enough to you know, reproduce the runs and everything. Um, but the interesting thing about Bristol Bay is that not only is it really prolific in volume, it does that without any help. It doesn't have any hatcheries. And, you know, what the state did back in the late 1970s, what it was it set up these hatcheries other parts of the state because the run times were so uneven, right? You'd have these big years and these really poor years. And, you know, a lot of that is because um, there's not as much diverse habitat in the rest of Alaska. There's certainly great salmon habitat. Don't get me wrong. I mean, after all, it's Alaska and there's a lot of salmon. But it's not quite like Bristol Bay everywhere around the state. And so in, in a, you know, one particular river, you might have one age group that did really well. They come back in big numbers. And then maybe the next year, the next couple of years, not so well. The fisheries a bust. And it's really hard to, you know, form jobs or industry or, or communities and economies around something that volatile. So the thinking was maybe we can even out this production. Uh, by having hatcheries. And so they've done it since, um, like I said, basically since the late 19th. And, uh, you know, that's that's where, gosh, I think around a third maybe of um, Alaska's salmon are, are hatchery raised, uh, you know, or at least started out their life in a hatchery. But Crystal um, Bay is very unique in that it doesn't, doesn't have any hatcheries. That's wild, man. I didn't know. First, I didn't know that 
um, Alaska didn't allow for fisheries at all. So anytime you get Alaskan salmon, it's by nature um, like wild caught, presumably. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, that's really cool to know that that uh, you know Bristol Bay is not reliant. It doesn't even have hatcheries at all. I can see why other. I can see why it would be useful, but it sounds like they don't even need them one bit, which is wild. No, they really don't. And, um, you know, we could talk about now or later, but uh, what's really interesting is that the last few years, some of the other regions haven't purchased as much. Um, and, you know, even though there's there's hatcheries here and there, there's also a lot of wild stock production, you know, in Bristol Bay, it's all of it, but around the state. And so some of these other areas just have, you know, who knows whether it's from climate change or, um, uh, or just natural fluctuations, you know, there's, um, there's kind of in year, uh, changes that happen out in the ocean, the PDO, right. Um, and it's kind of the El Nino type events that mm-hmm. can shift things around. So, you know, it's you, you, I don't think you can call one, two, or even three years a trend when you're talking about salmon run. Yeah. Because there's like a, there's different age classes and different um, uh, kind of different runs with, with within that. So, you know, you might have a five-year-old fish who five years ago, that run was really good. And then boom, they, you know, a lot more of them come back. But but what we're seeing is um, that Bristol Bay really is having amazing runs. I mean, 2018 and 2019 were some of the biggest runs ever. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And this year was really looking pretty bad, actually, initially. But it just looks like the fish were a little bit late. Um, and usually Bristol Bay's run is... Right around July 4th is kind of the peak. Hmm. And some of the old timers say, you know, you could set your calendar by that. <laughs> um, but there's, yeah, I mean, you know, that's basically if you wanted to know how many fish were caught, you just take however many fish had been caught up until July 4th, double it. And there's your, <laughs> there's your total. <laughs> um, but now we're seeing sometimes the run kind of peaks, you know, maybe around the 10th or, little earlier or a little later than that. So um, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to look at, you know, more historical numbers on this, but the last four days, uh, the fishing fleet has caught 10.6 million sockeye, mm-hmm. which, you know, I looked back through t- until 2012 and I couldn't find any four day stretch that was that prolific. Yeah. That sounds insane. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're talking about, you know, 16, 20 days, if not more on some boats. I mean, they're just, you know, they're going till, uh, till the crew drops basically because the fish are coming in so big. I've seen, you know, fishing nets, um, that they're just, yeah, they're just plugged because there's so many. And, and again, when you're catching fishing nets, sometimes the, initial reaction is, you know, Ooh, that doesn't sound good. But again, you've got these biologists managing teams of, um, of people and fishery technicians who are making sure enough fish get up river so that 
they can spawn, come back, and they've done this for decades the same way. So they have a pretty good idea about how many mm -hmm. fish need to get up. And then another question that I get asked sometimes is why wouldn't you just want to put more fish, you know, up the rivers? Wouldn't that wouldn't that make for bigger uh there's a returning fish? Wait, what do you mean like manually dropping them up river so they don't have to No, no, I'm just saying like if you didn't fish them and you let all the fish go up river, gotcha. then wouldn't there just be bigger and bigger runs? Oh yeah. And you know, especially for Bristol Bay because Oh gosh, probably over 90% of the fish that are caught in Bristol Bay are sockeye. It's really interesting in how, you know, sockeye is one of five wild salmon species. Um, they spend about half their life typically in freshwater. They spend in freshwater than other, um, than other salmon species. And, uh, and they're also vegetarians. Um, they don't, they not to, you know, I can't say they would never eat, uh, you know, a herring smolt or something like that, but they tend to feed on, you know, phytoplankton, plankton, and krill, a lot of krill, and, um, you know, smaller uh, kind of organisms like that, um, which is why they have this like deep red color in their flesh. But um, basically, I guess what I'm getting back around to is, if you have all these fish go up river and you have too many fish go up river, yes, all those salmon spawn and, ha and there's a bunch of smolt in the lakes and the rivers and they over forage, uh, the, the, the zooplankton. And then, you know, next year's crop of fish have enough food to eat. Right. You have more mortality and, you know, things can kind of oscillate up and down. Um, you know, it's, it's always, you know, there's always some unpredictability in it, right? Because water temperature and the amount of water flow matters. Um, and, you know, just lots of variables, which, you know, we don't have perfect data on all of it, but I think that, you know, we, we can see that by, you know, basically letting 10 million fish get up river, um, you know, or thereabouts, we, we get back. 30, 40 million fish. And wow. in some cases over 50 million fish. So it's pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, you're saying it's hard to like, you know, year to year analyze it, but what about like aggregate trends? It seems like this year has been particularly good. It seems like, you know, like you were saying between the fishermen and, and you know, those who work with them and the biologists, have this pretty figured out. I mean, I, you know, well, it's, <laughs> you're always tempting fate a little bit when you start thinking like that, when it comes to wild salmon, <laughs> I guess it's a good but, point. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, tree has been pretty good. Um, and I mean, this year we'll see it's, they do a test fishery. Um, gosh, it's probably a couple hundred miles from where the fish are caught and they, they test fish to see how many fish are entering this, you know, wide bird bay. And uh, they were catching a lot of fish five, six days ago. And those fish have not yet even made it to, um, to the fishing grounds. So we're thinking that we're probably going to see these big harvest numbers continue. Mm. Um, 
you know, so right now this is kind of an average season, just what we've got, but it, because it's so late, you know, it might end up being a, another really big season, but, but 2018 and 2019 were really big years. Um, you know, each over 200 million pounds, each over 40 million fish. By the way, a sockeye is about five to six pounds typically um, is the size you're talking about. And sockeye is 90%. What, what makes up the other 10%? Um, a lot of Kita salmon, also called chum salmon. Okay. Um, this area is one of the, you know, there's not a lot of ch uh, Chinook or King salmon left, unfortunately. And they're just, uh, you know, it's just a rare breed. I think, mm -hmm. um, it's the largest salmon, you know, at least in Alaska, the most sought after. Um, but yeah, but they're, you know, you're it's probably like less than 1% of the harvest is Kings. So when you're talking about what Alaskans call money fish, um, which is kind of the premium wild salmon species, mm -hmm. you're talking about sockeye, kings or chinooks, and coho or silvers. Um, gotcha. And you know, and and sockeye are the most abundant right. of those three. Okay, and like I said, Bristol Bay is where it's at for sockeye. They uh, this this area produces roughly half of the world of the entire world sockeye. Wow. Wow. Um, so is there a reason that they're, and I appreciate that it isn't, but is there a particular reason why they aren't farmed in Alaska? You know, I think there's, there's several reasons for that. Um, but one of them is, you know, Alaska has the natural habitat and is kind of blessed to have prolific wild salmon without needing it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a great couple of films on, on salmon called the breach and, and the wild by um, a filmmaker named Mark Titus. And, you know, there's a kind of a powerful graphic in there about, you know, there used to be wild salmon all across the Northern hemisphere. And now it's been, yep. you know, pushed out to just a few places. And so, you know, you mentioned uh, you know, hearing a lot about Bristol Bay people, you know, it's, it's in the news. Um, kind of hard for me to, <laughs> I guess, appreciate or know how much on people's radar it is or isn't mm -hmm. right. Cause that's, it's kind of my, you know, what I've got my head buried in on each day, but uh, but the reason that it does get talked about quite often is because it is so unique and it's so prolific. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's another reason it's in the news too, is, you know, the proposed pebble mine. Um, I'm not sure if you want to talk about that or if you're probably understandably yeah. maybe tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're all very tired of it. Right. And one of the things that you'll hear from um, Alaskans is, you know, what that thing's still around. I thought that went away. I thought they. Me too. I thought that know, too. I thought they weren't going to do that. Right. And it turns out, you know, the zombies risen back up and it's, and the project, you know, frighteningly is, is moving forward. Um, and, 
you know, I think we've obviously got a pro development administration. Um, And I'd say that, you know, the thing that's interesting about this project um, is that most Alaskans are also pro development, Mm -hmm. but they don't support this project. Poll after poll shows that people have widespread opposition to this project. Um, Definitely in the, in the area, you know, if, when they do regions, people in the Bristol Bay region are very opposed to it because, you know, kind of just to bounce back to what you asked about salmon farming, um, you know, why have salmon farms in Alaska if you have so much wild salmon? Why risk it? There's a lot of mm-hmm. places around that have salmon farms near them and the you know, there's a lot of lice that can happen, sea lice right. um, and parasites and things like that. And the wild salmon can pick that up as they're going by. Um, there's there's a lot of risks to having salmon farming and wild runs in close proximity. And so, you know, Alaska just didn't feel that was was worth the risk or, or needed. Um, but, you know, Alaskans understand that you don't need to have development for development's sake. You know, you don't need to do everything all at once. And, and they also understand, and and I think this comes from the native cultures and just the respect of the land, because when you spend time up there, you know, it's impossible not to be um, aware and, yeah, just just aware of the ecosystem. I mean, huge bears, you know, more eagles than you can count. Um, massive whales, you know, rivers plugged with salmon that you think you could walk across on it. Um, so, you know, there's there's so much wildlife and and um, ecosystem health that you know people they don't. It, it would just be unconscionable to ruin that, right? Mm-hmm. And you still need minerals and you still need development. And there's certainly a lot of places where that happens in Alaska, but there's not this this feeling of, um, you know, we got to do, th- that we have to do everything. And I think it's interesting, you know, in the kind of in the environmental conservation community, you know, ANWR, the um, yep. National Wildlife uh, Refuge and, and the oil reserves that are there come up from time to time. And, you know, I think the general feeling is that that's certainly some place that, you know, should be off limits to, to oil drilling. But that's not the way Alaskans tend to see it, at least on average. Ah, I was going to ask right? that. Yeah. So I think that's just, you know, it just throws this pair, this, uh, I guess this comparison to these two projects, right? Um, you know, and 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 I don't really have a strong opinion on that. I don't feel like I know enough about mm-hmm. Anwar drilling to um, to decide, but uh, but there's definitely some you know some more precedent for the oil and gas operations um, that are in the state, and you know it's something that Alaskans feel like. I think I think a lot of Alaskans. I'm talking on averages here that they think could be done, 
but they don't feel that way about Pebble. And I think one of the I think one of the things that doesn't maybe get talked a lot about, but um, it's always blown my mind, is that there's no precedent for a mine of this scale in this type of place with these types of risks uh, working, you know, and not having problems. Um, I want to play a clip that is from an interview, I uh, believe it was last year, and it's it's with uh, the Pebble Limited Partnership CEO, Tom Collier, and he gets asked an excellent question by this uh, Alaskan reporter named Lori Townsend. So I'm going to play it here. Maybe we can talk about it. Are there other mines similar in the type of process that you would use here, grinding rock into sand, extracting minerals, similar in size and hydrology of the area that you can point to that are 20 years along or more and have not had problems, have not had pollution issues? Yeah, I think um, I can't uh, pull one up right off of my uh, top of my head, but um, so... That's that's the forethought that went into building one of the largest open pit mines at the headwaters of the most productive, you know, wild salmon rivers in the world. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, so many different parts of that. Yeah, I was going to ask about the oil drilling because I've heard that there seems to be a lot of pro, you know, people who are pro oil drilling in Alaska, which is whatever. I mean, it's. You know, it's kind of a separate issue, but the fact that they're also anti this type of development, and yet it's still, like you said, man, it's still in the news. I remember hearing about this years ago, and it's still something that really seems to keep coming up over and over again. Has it kind of increased with the new administration? Like you were mentioning, is a little bit more, you know, development oriented than previous well, ones. I mean, I don't think you can say with a straight face, uh, you know, it wouldn't be at this point, if not for this administration. Right. I mean, it looked like there was going to be, there was proposed protections, a proposed determination that looked like it was going to be made to protect Bristol Bay and, you know, um, not allow large scale mining in the area, at least for, you know, the foreseeable future. Um, and then that was rolled back and withdrawn. And that was actually, you know, you had, uh, we had talked about um, our group was, was party to a lawsuit against the EPA mm-hmm. for withdrawing that, that protection. And, um, you know, unfortunately our case was dismissed oh, wow. in, in that instance. And so, and, but really it did not have anything to do with the merits of the Pebble project whatsoever. What it came in this EPA case was whether the EPA um, could withdraw this proposed determination. And the determination is to establish protections, to put in uh, protective measures for Bristol Bay. And because it was never finalized, the judge um, ruled that it was not a reviewable agency action. You know, it wasn't something the courts had the jurisdiction to do anything about. Um, but, you know, if that had been a final determination, uh, you know, things where like the Army, U.S. Uh, 
uh, Army Corps engineers issuing permits, you know, those are certainly actions which are reviewable by the courts. And so, so we're turning our, our attention to that because that's really where the rubber's going to meet the road. And, um, and yeah, this process uh, is actually getting pretty close to wrapping up um, for the, the permitting process. We expect to see a final an environmental impact statement within the next, uh, well, they said sometime in late June or early July, so could be any day now. Um, and then thir- at least 30 days, that there has to be at least a 30-day window until a permit could be issued. But again, the inertia of this thing and seeing seeing this process continue despite the uh, glaring defects and some really sharp negative comments from Alaska senators, from the Department of the Interior, from the EPA itself. Um, you know, wow. it doesn't give us much hope that a permit won't be issued probably before the election would be my my bet. Yeah, mine too. Um, wow. So where are we like, where are we percentage wise in the process? Like what? Okay. Could be a permit in the next few, you know, months. What then? What, what, what would the steps be, you know, to continue to combat this thing? Right. So in terms of the permitting process, you know, we're probably on the five or 10 yard line, um, you know, or at least pebbles on the five or 10 yard line going towards the end zone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there's a long way to go after that. There's still a lot of, uh, time and I guess, you know, to extend the metaphor, a lot of game left. Um, they need permits, they need local permits. Uh, just as important as that, this is not a company that develops, well, this is not a company that uh, has a history of operating mines. This is their sole asset. And so they need to find a big investor because this mine, it comes with a huge price tag, massive. Oh, wow. And there's already been, yeah. And there's already been six, six investors, you know, that, I mean, because this is kind of a junior mining company and, and a relatively smaller one, um, over the years, they've had larger partners like your Anglo-Americans, your Rio Tintos, your Mitsubishis, and they've all walked away. And a lot of those larger companies have um, walked away from hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. wow. Because they, you know, obviously recognize this thing is just, it's just not good. Right. Um, and I think what they realize is like, even if you win, you don't win, you know, steamrolling over, um, one of the healthiest, you know, the healthiest salmon run in the world. And one of the, you know, most, robust intact native cultures in the world yeah is that something you want to be your company's legacy right especially if you're an anglo-american or if you're a rio tinto with you know operations around the globe right mm-hmm. um so a lot of uh a lot of reputational risk for potential and you know investors um but i you know i don't know if i've ever said this but 
I've talked about it with others a few times before. And the point I want to make here is that it's important for people to see this project for what it is. The The parent company, Northern Dynasty, which owns Pebble Limited Partnership, it's, it's not trying to build a mine. Yes, it's trying to get a permit to build a mine, but what they're really trying to do is create an investment exit opportunity. You know, I think they, they've got to want to get out from under this project or out of this project, um, you know, and whether that's selling off the whole stake or just keeping a minority share in it, hmm. um, you know, they don't, they don't have the wherewithal to, to do this, which also makes it concerning because that means you're, you know, (laughs) okay. They're immediately trying to get out before they've even started. Right. You know, they're making a lot of promises, but they're not going to be the ones there to keep them. So how many, how many groups would you say have effectively bailed on the mine realizing it's a bad idea? Um, I saw a recent article that came out, um, if it was from NR, uh, National Re- uh, NRDC or, or someone else, but it mentioned six, six large investors. And, um, you know, the most recent one wasn't really a partner so much as it was um, uh, an investment firm that essentially divested like 99% of its shares you know, for its clients had, had sold off. Um, so that gets included in there too. But, you know, a lot of these were basically larger mining companies that were, you know, they were investing into, be, you know, having an option to be the, the kind of primary partner, the primary operating partner on this. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, there. You know, it's a project without a um, a bankroll at this at this point. But you know, there's still money to be made, um, and everyone. It's been widely reported. You know, the Tom Collier will get a twelve million dollar bonus if a permit's issued. Um, was that the CEO? You know, earlier? Sure, right. That's that's the CEO of of the the Pebble Limited Partnership. Uh, you know, group. Um, so, gosh, you know, I could I'm just kind of looking at some of my, um, you know, notes here, and it uh, there's so many things wrong with this mine. I mean, it, it, Ted Stens said, you know, he's not against mining, but this is just the wrong place and the wrong mine. Um, there was a Republican. Uh, senator named Rick Halford, who served, um, you know, very admirably in the Alaska Senate for many years um, as as a Republican, and uh, you know, he basically just you know, his thoughts are there's just you know it couldn't be a worse place for for this mine. It's the the ore deposit is relatively low grade. Yes, it's a massive deposit. Pebble says it's the largest undeveloped gold and uh, copper deposit in the world. Wow. But it's relatively low grade, which means you're going to have to move huge amounts of earth. Um, it's got a high sulfur content. So you really spike the risk of, um, 
of pollution and damage to, you know, to the water and the ecosystem. And speaking of water, this is a really wet area. It gets lots of precipitation. The, the geology, there's, you know, rivers and lakes running everywhere. Everything's connected by water there. Um, and fault lines. Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of earthquakes. Right. So, you know, the thought of building a massive, uh, gosh, I think I've seen estimates of how high the, the tailings dam would be, ranging from like six to 900 feet, uh, miles wide. You know, and that's this is for the small, you know, well, the, I think the 600 foot one was for the smaller mine footprint, as they're calling it. But, you know, to think that that's going to be there forever and hold back, you know, this million tons of of um, damaging waste rock, that's just fantasy. And again, where's the precedent for that? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, re really risky. And, you know, the EIS, it's the environmental impact statement. It should analyze these risks. You know, even if we, you know, even if you believe as I do that this thing should have never even gone to permitting because, again, there should be a long precedent, successful precedent. If you're if you want to do a big project like this at the headwaters of the most productive uh, wild salmon rivers in the world. But even if you say, well, let's see what, you know, let's see what they want to do. Um, the this document, this analysis, yeah, it's like three, four thousand pages long, but it's it not address a lot of the key gaps. Um, we we knew from preliminary meetings that the Army Corps was having that we probably wouldn't see a uh, a dam failure, a tailings dam failure analysis in draft EIS which that's one of the key things we're worried about, right? A lot of people have probably seen pictures of uh, Mount Pauly or the, um, the failures in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, and they're catastrophic. They're, you know, they, they deposit toxic waste, in some cases, hundreds of miles downstream. And, um, so, oh yeah, I'm looking at images now. We we didn't expect to see that analysis in the draft EIS. So so we found a consultant, um, very highly respected, that does this type of hydrological um, uh, research, and they took a look at it. And their their analysis is very straightforward. It looks at about roughly 30 dam tailing dam failures around the world, and it you know there's data on how much of this toxic slurry um the material gets deposited how deep how wide how far how much was there to begin with right and and how quickly the, the dam structure gave way and then they they used the um you know they, they made a topographical model of the the area where the pebble mine would be in the downstream area from that and they were able to do a really good job of, I think, predicting what a, a tailings dam failure would look like. And it's, 
and it's really bad. Uh, what you find when you compare all these dam failures around the world is that basically the larger the dam, the more that comes out of it, which, yeah. you know, <laughs> a lot of really smart scientists actually, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of smart scientists worked on coming up with proving that, but I mean, if it's not as um, steep a grade, I mean, there could be a lot of factors, mm -hmm. but basically the amount of volume that would be expected to come out of this uh, bulk tailings dam or a facility would be about 10 times larger than Mount Pauly and, and the spills in Brazil. Wow. And that's all like heavy metals and all sorts of that, you know, the byproducts of whatever's being mined. So contaminating everything further downstream. Yeah, and then the 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 dam itself is going to be made with waste rock, which is acidic, and the plan is to treat all of that water somehow. There's not a lot of detail on that, what is, but basically, what they is wanna... waste rock? Sorry, what's that? Oh, waste rock. Yeah, right. So basically, you're using, you know hard rocks, you know, larger boulders, larger rocks to, um, to build the dam itself. It's going to hold back all of this toxic material. Um, now, if you wanted to do it in a safer way, you would quarry that from somewhere else. You know, you'd find somewhere else that didn't have such acidic rock and you'd bring it in. Well, that's a lot of rock and that's going to, that would be really expensive. So that's not the plan. Um, but, you know, just back to the water, because this, this really does, this mine gets, you know, people are worried about the salmon, but it's really the water, you know, salmon, salmon need the water and the habitat. And, um, oh, I'm just trying to find the, the bit here um, about the water treatment, but this water treatment plant is just um, unprecedented in how big it would be. Um, so, so you're saying even if the even if the dam itself didn't, even if there was still fishing allowed, or it was able, to, you were able to still fish around there. Um, you know, the salmon could still run in some way. That's not the big concern. That's not the biggest concern. The biggest concern is actual the water quality after the dam is in place, whether it breaks or not. That's um, because depending on what plan they follow to get the ore out, you still have a lot of copper dust. And dust doesn't sound like much of a thing, but there's been a lot of studies on how it affects um, salmon's ability to smell and evade predators um, and to navigate their their way you know back to kind of the ideal spawning grounds um, so you know even just the dust is a big problem and they're proposing to to do what's called an ore concentrate pipeline so if you think about like a like a oil pipeline except this would be moving, um, I think basically copper concentrate as, as I understand it. And this was a recent change that has not had public comment 
on it. Well, I, I guess it was included as one of the scenarios or one of the um, alternative measures. But at the time, it wasn't one that was looked at as being the one that Pebble wanted to do. Um, now they're saying, oh, okay, we're going to go and do it this way. And we're going to go around the north side of Lake Iliamna, which is a huge lake. Um, which with really interestingly, the water quality in Lake Iliamna is so good. I mean, you can just pick up a cup and it, it tastes like, you know, filtered water you'd get at the store. Um, it's extremely clean, but, uh, but, you know, we, when we heard that they were going to go with this Northern route and this, this pipeline, it's like, okay, well, what is the risks of that? Right. Mm-hmm. And in the EIS, it says, well, the, this, you know, these ore concentrate pipelines are pretty rare. So there's really not much data on how often they, they fail. But they know that oil and gas pipelines over a 20-year period, which I'll, I can get back to in a second because that's total nonsense. Um <laughs> that they're only going to do this mine for 20 years. Right. But even over that period, it's like a 23% failure rate. So you basically got a one in four chance that something's going oh, to go wrong. And that's for oil and gas pipelines, which, you know, they've been doing and making and operating far more for far long, longer than this, this unique or concentrate pipeline idea. Um, so they just kind of, you know, brush the, the EIS and the Army Corps just kind of brushes off and says, well, you know, we don't really know what the risks are there, but we don't think it's too bad. Um, and even some, some parts in it just make your head spin. It's like, well, even if there was a spill, we could get out there and clean it up and, and it'd all be fine. And it's like, I mean, how do you clean something like that up when it spills all over a river? I don't right. and why, why understand what that risk. is like. Right. Um, but the point on the water treatment is you know we've some other groups have looked more into this this aspect and um they would need to uh treat an average of 11.8 billion gallons per year uh after the mine is closed forever um i'm not really and there's really no clear indication of where that money is going to come from but let's just say you know assume for a second that it could be funded that's far more water treatment than any other u.s mining operation including the nation's largest superfund uh mining sites um i think even half of that is is more than uh any other mine so you know again they want to do something that's never been done. Right. Not and even close. Pushing for it year after year without funders. It's never been done. Not to this scale. No one wants it in this area. And they keep pushing for funders. It's not in the great area. It sounds like it's, you know, there might be product there, but it's difficult to get to and not as refined as it could be. It seems like everything's pointing them not to do this. Yet they're still pushing forward with it. Yeah, and the EP or the uh, the Department of the Interior summed up. They concluded their comment on the draft EIS, saying, 
you know, based on these identified deficiencies that they enumerated, the draft EIS is so inadequate that it precludes meaningful analysis. And that's, you know, that's coming from another department that's also part of the Trump administration. So it's pretty shocking that, you know, again, we're seeing this continue. And, uh, and if you take that comment at face value, then you'd have to, you know, logically you'd say, well, boy, we should probably see some type of supplement. You know, it sounds like this draft EIS needs more work and should yeah. go back out for public comment. But there seems to be a political timeline here. Um, Good Lord. That's, you know, pretty hard to, to deny. Um, yeah, I, uh, the other, the, so we, we also had some seismic um, analysis done because this, the seismic study that they did in the ES was also very faulty. Ha ha ha. Um, I wish it was a laughing matter, but it's not. Um, and so, you know, what this, what, and there's a report on our website about it that, you know, goes into great detail. But one of the, basically, they don't understand enough about the seismic risk. And they also don't understand enough about the stability of the, um, the area where they want to build the tailings dam. And what's really interesting to me is that it's the, this is the same company designed the Mount Polly Dam, okay? And the report on that dam failure says that basically there was a layer of um, clay that slid out. It's kind of, you know, they didn't know about it mm -hmm. and it got saturated and wet and the whole thing just, just, just let go. So, you know, what this comes down to is they don't, they didn't know in that case, they didn't do enough analysis and prep work to figure out the stability of that underlying uh, uh, area. And that seems like the exact same right. mistake is being made here. So who's responsible for creating that EIS? Is it, um, yeah. How is that? How is that chosen? Yeah. So that's, uh, that's written by the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, staff. Okay. Okay. And yeah. they, you know, they pull in, supposed to pull in data from all different sources um, to do that, which is interesting because, you know, we see a lot of, um, you know, certainly the mine developer, you know, they submit their plans and they submit their permit application and, and things along with that. But, you know, like I said, they didn't do that tailor, that tailings failure analysis. And even when we submitted that as a comment and submitted that on the record, um, I don't think we're going to see it in the final EIS. I'd be very surprised uh, because there was a draft, I believe, that came out after, um, you know, after the draft EIS that we saw. And it just doesn't look like they're even going to acknowledge that work. Um, and so we'll see if they acknowledge the new site work, but it's, you know, it's peer reviewed and it's, you know, it's good science. It's mm -hmm. accurate, it's more detailed and, uh, you know, one way or the other, 
the the law the environmental laws say you have to consider the environmental risks on a project and um you know i think in terms of what other people you know of, of what the general public can do is you know if if you're upset about something that's why we have a democracy and that's why we have we elect you know representatives for us and so you can all you can always contact your your members of congress your senators and representatives and say hey i'm concerned about this i want you to look into this um and uh there's actually a website i think you know if, if you're not sure who your senator representative are you can certainly just google that and if you put in your zip code in a number of sites they'll tell you exactly who that is but uh but there's also a website called choice voice vote and uh, sorry choicevoicevote.org on there it says save bristol bay alaska and there's a whole bunch of things you can do to to help um which includes writing members of congress um signing on to different letters and petitions and I think another way that, you know, one of the things that our group does is we, we work to promote the sustainability of this fishery. We do, um, we provide ice uh, to, to the fishermen. Mm -hmm. um, we, we really work to make the fishery, you know, as, as good as it can be. And, and we do marketing. And so we've got a, uh, a link on there and it's, find.bristolbaysockeye.org and if you go to this uh, fish finder site as we call it you can code and hit find your fish and what it, it will find uh, suppliers of Bristol Bay sockeye salmon near you oh, nice. um, you know yeah and it like I said a few times, this fishery is so prolific and so big that um, roughly half of, of the fishery is probably Alaska residents, you know, uh, somewhere around there. But we have residents of 48 different states that come up and fish commercially in this fishery. <laughs> and so there's a lot of people that do what we call direct marketing um, around the U.S. And if you don't have a direct marketer or if you don't have a fish, uh, you know, in your area, we've you can just look up your local grocer. There's a lot of different grocery stores. Most major grocery stores carry sockeye salmon, mm -hmm. and because you know Bristol Bay is like 80% of Alaska's sockeye, there's a good chance that sockeye is coming from Bristol Bay. But you know. If there's not a fisherman and there's not a grocer in your area who sells it, you can always have it shipped to your door. Um, and that's always an option too. You know, and there's some some meal kit companies that we've that we've worked with, like ButcherBox, um, HelloFresh, uh, Blue Apron. A lot of them have Bristol Bay sockeye uh, options, you know, that come with an easy to prepare recipe and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, this salmon, salmon is food. It's been the food for the native peoples there for, you know, over a thousand years. 
um, and probably several thousand. It's uh, and it's been this commercial fishery goes for over 130 years, you know, providing oh, wow. kind of the bounty to to the world. Um, so it's really something that should be shared. And you know, if, if you kind of experience it without you know traveling all the way there, um, eating it is is a great way to do that. And it's super healthy. It's one of the healthiest proteins you could find. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do, do I want to go back to the, um, to like the representatives, do you know any representative that is actually for Pebble Bay at all or Pebble Mine at all? You know, none that come to mind, but I'm sure there's, uh, what we probably need is more representatives to stand up, um, for a legitimate permitting process. Gotcha. And to stand up to say, you know, what, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, um, you know, we, we need our representatives to say, you know, just because you oppose Pebble does not mean you're anti-development or anti-mining. Right. Um, and we need them to make that distinction and we need them to, uh, you know, I think the Army Corps and the Trump administration need to hear that this isn't what the this is not what the local residents want. This is not what Alaskans want, and I don't think it's what the American public wants. Now, you know, you get to the American public and such, you know, three hundred million plus people. There's a lot of things on everybody's radar, right? So they're not not going to be as knowledgeable about it as people in Bristol Bay or people in Alaska, but you know, the only, the only group here that has a timeline on this is the mining company. Right. Of course. And I guess you could say the administration, um, you know, the, the, the metals are not going anywhere. Right. Uh, and I don't know why there's a big rush to get them out of the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's one reason why just, well, sure. Of course, yeah. there's always one reason. Um, but, you know, from a societal standpoint, it just doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, this is, like I said at the beginning of our of our talk, I mean, this is the last great wild salmon run. And, I, mm. you know, I'm sure not everybody likes salmon, but, you know, as far as, as, far as eating it. But, uh, man, we can't just keep yeah. sacrificing things. You know, we can't just keep polluting different parts of the world. And there's a really unique, special place here that's it's got this incredible ecosystem and this incredible culture. I mean, the, the native culture there, and there's a fishery culture too, uh, both sport and commercial. You know, it's certainly... It, this is the most, this is the most valuable commercial salmon fishery in the world. Um, and you've got thousands of people from all over who, who come into fish. Right. And so, um, it's just a really, you know, interesting, um, you've got to be a mechanic, you've got to be a biologist, <laughs> uh, you know, you've got to have a strong back. You've, you know, you've got to be a meteorologist. Um, <laughs> 
you know, also a sailor, of course, you know, you, you got to be a lot of things to make it in this fishery, right? Big job description. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one. And, um, and, but on the sports side too, this is like a, you know, sport fishing Mecca and, and bear watching Mecca. I mean, with so many salmon, it's, you know, I could probably look it up and tell you that it's the most, uh, you know, dense concentration of brown bears on the planet. I, I don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, again, there's just so many salmon that, um, that uh, there's a lot of bears. And, uh, you know, everything in this region uh, depends on the salmon. You know, everything that lives there, every animal or person that lives there or works there, I'd say depends on the salmon, you know, at, at some point or to some degree. Yeah. So, yeah. And so it, it deserves protection. And, and, you know, I'm sure Pebble Mine is going to claim, oh, yeah, we're, we're bringing jobs to this area. We're going to bring wealth to this area. But, you know, no matter how long that mine will be there for, it's, you know, it's finite, right? I mean, there's not going to be minerals there forever. Um, the whole object is to, you know, mine them. For right here, you guys have done an incredible job of managing this fishery. Um, even just, like you were saying, like commercial fishermen or sport fishermen, or even just people coming to that area. They're probably not going to come there if there's a huge mine there, unless they're like, want to see one of the biggest mines in the world and that's it. So there's a lot more ways, if you're just talking strictly economically, there's a lot more ways to sustain that community than than pebble mine it sounds like right no for sure and um i think you know the the eis we seem to start from an assumption that salmon and this large-scale mining can coexist and uh i just i just don't see the precedent for that you know and so I don't think you can't, you shouldn't make that assumption without, w without precedent. Wow. That just seems reckless. That's where they started. So, too. Well, right. I mean, it's like, <laughs> there's certainly more jobs that are created by the, by salmon than would be created by the mine. Um, so, you know, if you're the mine developer, you know, you can't really win that argument. But you can say, we're going to bring in more jobs. You know, we're going to bring in, adi or, you know, additional jobs. Right. Right. And, and, not, and not harm, not do anything to the salmon fishery. And I think it's been on record with uh, Tom Collier and both Alaska senators saying, you know, this mine must coexist with salmon. It cannot damage these, these you know, unique, unparalleled salmon runs. Again, it's really easy to say that when this company might not even be around to operate the mine. Yeah. Um, and when it doesn't, you know, when it's like, well, what's the, what's the cost? You know, there's the compensatory mitigation is totally inadequate uh, according to, you know, this administration's EPA, which says a lot, um, you know, they're not, they're not going to, and, and there's no way to repay it. You can't re. You can't fix uh, ruining this salmon run with yeah. money. Yeah. Seriously. Wow. 
man, it's um, I don't know it's it's sobering for sure. What is the you know I understand the permit process could be done pretty quickly, but after that, there's still ways of salvaging, still ways of stopping, still hopefully at least you know if people get motivated and activated ways to sandbag this or maybe even stop the process entirely. Yeah, like I said, I think they just need to hear that this is, you know, widely unpopular, not just in Alaska, um, which, you know, I'm calling your summed up, <laughs> summed up people's thoughts on, on Alaska by saying, well, no one gives a rat's ass what happens in Alaska. I just saw that. You said his name. I Googled that. That was the first thing that came up. Yeah, but we need people to give a rat's ass. And I mean, this is, you know, these uh, 40 million salmon work out to about 400 million uh, servings of of food each year of, uh, you know, like I said, really high quality protein. It's it's culture. It's, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more than just dollars and cents. Um, so, you know, hopefully people can talk that. And I think also it's kind of like a, a watershed moment or it's, it's, it's kind of another milestone in our entire society's, you know, history that we're writing with our, our, um, effect on the environment. Right. I mean, you know, long ago, I don't think we knew as much about how greenhouse gases worked and you know there was there was a lot that montana didn't know when it was letting you know big mines be built and and things like that um but we you know we know better now and and it's you know it's it's on our society if we allow it to go forward knowing what we know yeah there's no excuse Right. Andy, I, I want to thank you so much for your time, uh, <laughs> taking time away to uh, talk with me, taking time away from fighting the good fight. So thank you so much. Um, I will do my best to promote this as best as possible and trying to get the word out there. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, Brian. And um, I'll, I'll leave you with one other uh, website that Please. it's going to be a lot of fun to, to check out. It's uh, you know, I said the find.bristolbaysockeye.org. You can find um, great, great sockeye salmon. But we also have an amazing uh, recipe library. And so if you go to bristolbaysockeye.org, um, there's some fantastic recipes there. And, you know, if you're, if you're kind of a novice, we've got, if you go under wild taste, we've got some really straightforward cooking techniques that, you know, it's perfect salmon, five foolproof ways. And, uh, you know, your listeners can knock their and knock themselves out and knock <laughs> and knock their, uh, you know, their dairy guests out too with some, some really delicious salmon. Nice, man. I'm in. I'll, we'll do some this weekend. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Andy, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. 
until next time. Take care.